you have a Bible, I'd invite you to take it up and turn with me to the book of Matthew, to the book of Matthew. If you're unfamiliar with your way around the Bible, there's the Old Testament and the New Testament, and Matthew is the first book in the New Testament, uh, or you can just kind of look it up on any mobile device that you may have, your mobile device of choice. You can Google Matthew chapter one and you'll be there, or if you would like... Uh, if you'd like, there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you, and we would encourage you to uh, take it up and turn with me, and you can join, you can find this reading on page 783 as we begin our, uh, our Advent series, the first Sunday of Advent. Before we do that, and before we get to this text, uh, then I do have some family news that I would like to share with you this morning. Uh, it is with mixed emotions that I announced to you this morning that our executive pastor, Jim Hobbs, has accepted the call to become the executive pastor of Oak Point Church in Novi, Michigan. Jim and Tammy, as you may know, are both originally from Michigan and in recent years have had an increasing sense of responsibility to be near their aging parents. The Lord has opened the door for Jim and Tammy to be near their family and also to serve in this exciting new position. On December the 11th, uh, we will have Jim and Tammy here on stage with us uh, so that they can share in greater detail uh, the, their journey and their story. On that day, you will also have the opportunity to thank the Hobbs for their years of faithful service to each of you and to our church and to our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let me, let me pray for the Hobbs and pray for our study of God's word this morning. Father, we come to you. You are the God who is sovereignly in control of all things, and we give you thanks for that. We give you thanks that you are a God who is worthy of all of our praise and all of our worship, and that though you are sovereign, you are intimately involved in the details of each of our lives, including that of the, and the family of the Hobbs. And we are so deeply grateful to you for them and for their friendship with us as a church and as individuals. We're thankful for their children and for the way that you have used them over many years to be a significant part of this body. And so, Father, it is again with mixed emotions that we pray for them as they go, as they go to tend to their family, which is right and which is good. And as they go to bless a new church and a new opportunities, Father, we commend them into your care. And now, Father, as we turn to your word, we ask that you, by your spirit, will be our teacher and will be our helper and be our guide. Will you, uh, will you do what your word promises, and that as we are faithful to your word, that it will not return void. And it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Have you started um, getting ready for Christmas yet? Um, we, we have. Actually, we did early. Uh, for the first time ever, my wife convinced me to decorate for Christmas before Thanksgiving. Uh, and, and I did it. I don't know if that's wise on my part or I'm not sure exactly. I, I really blame the snow because the snow came and then it was sort of like, okay, it's Christmas. We can do this. So now the Christmas lights are up, and, um, and so it, it did make Thanksgiving weekend a little bit more relaxing that I didn't have to haul a bunch of boxes out of the, out of the basement. But we're there. It's Christmas time. And, you know, um, it's fun because there's the hustle and bustle and fun of Christmas and of the Advent season. And then it's some of those very same things of ad that also um, war against our soul, drain our soul. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, 
then we can allow Jesus to be on the periphery of our Advent celebration. We can allow Jesus, although he's the point, to stand on the sidelines of our Christmas celebration. And so this morning, we engage in our Advent series that we're calling Simple Christmas. Because in the midst of the hustle and bustle, in the midst of the technology, in the midst of the lights, in the midst of the light fight that's going to start soon, if you're into that, um, we want to go back and we want to look at the simplicity of the Christmas story. So we invite you to join with us and invite your friends to come and join with us as you're able to celebrate Advent together. Thursday, I was on the phone with my mom. I was calling uh, and just to wish her a happy Thanksgiving and just to have some conversation with her. And it was, you know, holidays are that nice place, at least it has for us, that we were able to just sort of have some ambling conversation in the morning. And I learned that my mother was actually born in, in North Carolina. I thought she had been born in Georgia. I thought she was born in Georgia, but it turns out that they lived on the edge of the, the Georgia-North Carolina border, and she was actually born in North Carolina, the hometown of my grandmother. Uh, and, then, and then they lived in Georgia, and then she started to go on as we were talking, and she started to talk a little bit more about those early years of her life, how because my, gr- my grandfather, who worked in the factory, he would either get ticked off with the people he was working with, and then they'd move up to Ohio, and then he would do some work there, or there was just more work in Ohio, and when the work dried up in Georgia, then he would go up to, and work in the factories in Ohio. And so they would go back and forth, and for the first years of my, of my mom's life, then she was in probably two or three different elementary schools in one year for the first couple of years, first couple grades, until eventually, probably around the second grade, my grandfather settled down, and he worked for a number of years at PPG, Pittsburgh Plate and Glass, and that's where he worked, sometimes worked three jobs in order to support his family. I remember distinctly the day when we had a great celebration for my grandfather when he got his gold helmet for the years of service that he had at PPG. It was a big day for us as a family. It's fun to talk about those things. I wonder if you had conversations similar around your Thanksgiving table or with friends and family. You know, it reminds me of the fact that the the place where I am today, the place where you are today, The decisions that I make today and the person that I am today and the way that I think today is a part of a a much bigger story, isn't it? Like who you are and who we are is a part of something that's far more large and far more significant than just ourselves and our own story. You know, as much as we'd love to think that we are the product of our individual choices, as much as we love to think that, um, that I can, I'm in control of my life and I can determine who I really want to be, the reality of the fact is all of us are a part of a story that is far bigger than just our individual choices. We're a part of a story that is far more significant than just our own little lives, our own little corner of wherever we are in our world our own little street here in Maple Grove or or the community that you come from. We're a part of something far more significant. Our story is a part of a significant story. And that's where we find here in Matthew chapter 1. So if you have your Bibles open, I want you to join with me as I read this interesting passage, the beginning, Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jerom. Jehoram, and Jehoram, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, and Jotham, the father of Ahaz, Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, Josiah, the the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon... Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel was the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Methan, Methan the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who was called the Messiah. Thus, there were 14 generations in all from Abraham Abraham to David, 14 from David to exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. I once heard a pastor say that all of the scriptures are inspired, but not all of the scriptures are equally inspiring wonder if you felt that way when I was reading this. (laughs) He said, seriously, can pastor really be reading this? Because we just skip over these bits and parts, usually in our Bible study. And we don't read them out loud for for sheer fact that we'll end up making fun of one another trying to pronounce the names. (laughs) I understand. And this will be our text, because I think it's important for us as we find our way towards and make our way towards Christmas to think through a bit of the backstory, the backstory of Christmas, the backstory of Christmas. You know, family history has become a big deal in these days. It always has from a medical standpoint, and it's important to know your family history, your, fa- your family medical history. But even more than that, you know, with the increase of technology, then you have uh, websites like Ancestry.com or MyHeritage.com or Genealogy.com, and you've been able to have the opportunity to learn more about where you came from and about why and it helps you kind of put your life into a bigger context, doesn't it? It helps us, and we have an interest in... Nobody else has an interest in our history, but we have an interest in our history because you start to tell people about what you've found on, on, on Ancestry.com, and they start going, yes, I think I have an appointment. I, I think I have to go anywhere. Um, I think I have to go get a root canal. I'm, I'm gone. But it is important to us, isn't it? It is settling for us to be able to know that we fit into some sort of story. 
It helps us be able to know that, I mean, it doesn't take long for people to be around you folks. You know, you Minnesotans, you start talking about being Norwegian and you start talking about being Lutheran and you start talking about Ludafisk. And I still don't know what that is and I'm not anxious to find out because you've given such glowing reviews of it. (laughs) But there's something, and, and as much as that's true for us to be able to have that History put us in a context and give us a sense of our moorings. It was even more so. It was even more true in the ancient times. It was even more so because they were in a communal culture. And so what Matthew is actually doing here, what he's doing in these, these verses, is not just, he's not just setting this, this story into context. What he's actually doing is giving a resume. You know how, how we do resumes. So when we put our resume together, then we tell people our story, our work story, all of our accolades and our accomplishments. We put it there on a piece of paper and then we give it to somebody in order that they might be able to think well of us, that they might be able to understand where we've come from, that they can understand all the things that we've accomplished. Well, here, it's the same thing. You know, the, the, the parts that we don't like about our, our history, we sort of leave those bits out. And the parts that we do like, that we think people will make us look favorable, then we put those in. Well, so it is with, that's in the, in the ancient times, that's exactly what a genealogy was. Because it was a communal time, and so the way that people understood the, your rich heritage, the way that people understood who you were as a person, that was that you had strong roots, that you came from good stock, that you were a part of this lineage. That was, and so this is the resume. And just like we did, we use our resumes now in order we tweak them and we kind of move them in order that people will think well of us. So it was in the ancient times that there was people in their history that they, not the best people, didn't have the greatest reputation. They would just kind of conveniently leave those folks out. (laughs) But the people that gave them a good name that were important, then they would leave those folks in. You know, for us, for us, if, if you found out that one of your great, ancestors was Jesse James, like you wouldn't feel terrible. You'd be like, oh, well, that's interesting. And then you'd go to your office Christmas party and they would say, tell us something interesting about yourself. And you would say, did you know I was a descendant of Jesse James? And people would go, I didn't know that. Let's move along, right? I mean, but that wasn't the case for them. If there was somebody, because this was their resume, this was about who they were. And so they would go. And so what we have here in front of us, what Matthew is giving us, is saying, here's the resume of Jesus. This is who Jesus is. This is who he is. And so we have this here. But here's the thing about what Matthew does. It was common for them to be be able to say, these are all the most important people that have come, that I've come from all these significant people, so that onlookers would read your heritage, read your genealogy, read your lineage, and go, wow, that's impressive. But Matthew does the complete opposite. This list, this genealogy, is actually the complete opposite of the way you and I would actually put our resume together or would, if we were in that time, would have put our genealogies t- together. Let's look at this. There are three categories that I, wanna, that I want to, uh, to point you towards. What makes the difference? Well, hopefully these categories will be, able to be, will be able to highlight the difference of what Matthew is doing as he's trying to introduce people to the Messiah, the person of Jesus. First, the first category that he, that he highlights 
is what I will refer to as gender outsiders, as gender outsiders. One of the most striking things about this list is that there are women in it. It's not striking to you and I, because that would be a part of our genealogy if we were to do that. It's not striking to you, but it, it would have been in the, in, in the first century. It would have been in the first century that there would actually be women. This would have been a big deal to have a woman involved in, in this lineage, in this genealogy. Matthew has five women in this genealogy, not just one, but he brings in five, five women. He mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Uriah's wife, who is Bathsheba, and Mary. Five women that he mentions in this genealogy. It was a very male-dominant culture. And it would have been, because men were the ones who were supposed to be, in, the, in their way of thinking, the ones to whom the, the, the name would have been passed. They were the important ones. And yet here, Matthew mentions five women, gender outsiders, as a part of the lineage, as a part of the resume of Jesus. Matthew includes them here. The second category, so the first category would have been gender outsiders. The second category is racial outsiders. Three of these five women that Jesus meant, or that, that is in Jesus' heritage on his resume, were Gentiles. So Tamar was a Canaanite, Rahab was a Canaanite, and as you know, Ruth was a Moabite. So they were they were out, so they weren't Jews. They were people that were racially outcast from the Jewish people. They were people that were, so, so these people were unable to come to the temple and were unable to worship. They were unable to engage in the tabernacle worship of the Jewish people. They were unclean people. They were the people that you're supposed to stay away from because they're not Jews. They're the people that would make you ceremonially unclean and unable to come before the Lord. You can't be with these people. And yet here in the resume of the Messiah are the racial outsiders that are a part of his resume. And here they are. They are outsiders because of race, and yet they find themselves in Jesus' genealogy. No one in their right mind would put these people in their, stir, in their story. No one in their right mind would put a woman on their resume, let alone five of them, and then three of the five are actually outsiders. What's going on? They would have said. The third category. So there's the gender outsiders, there's the racial outsiders, and thirdly, there's the cultural outsiders. Matthew seems to be making a point because he wants to bring out some of the most sordid, nasty, and immoral acts in the history of God's people. In verse 3, he brings out Judah. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. I wonder if you know that story. If you're familiar with the story, you can read the story for your homework in Genesis 38. It's certainly um, a bit racy if you're looking for some afternoon reading. Just as a highlight, so Tamar, uh, uh, let me see, Judah has a son, and the son marries a woman named Tamar. Well, they, they, they were unable to have children. The son ends up dying for reasons. Uh, he ends up dying. Right? And then what ends up happening throughout the course of the story, if you were to go read it, is that eventually Tamar decides to dress up like a prostitute and she tricks her father-in-law into sleeping with her in order that they might be able to have children. Right? That's, that's the story. That's the story. It's incest. 
Nowhere in the Bible is incest okay. Nowhere in the Bible is it encouraged. Nowhere in the Bible is it there. And yet here in Jesus's resume, in his family past, he includes Perez and Zerah, Judah and Tamar. Matthew seems to be wanting to make a point. He wants to be sure that his readers understand the story. He wants to, he wants to be sure that we understand the dysfunctional background of the family from, Je- from which Jesus came. He, he, he's not done yet. Because then he goes to verse 5, which is Rahab. And you can read the story in Joshua 2. That not only is Rahab a, a Canaanite, an outsider, not only is she a woman, but she was also a prostitute. If you, if you remember that, that um, Joshua sends spies in order to go look at Cana, and she is the one who actually holds the spies. Not only does she, does she help the spies, but she lies for the spies. And then she helps him escape. And here she is. And here she is. Verse 6, he gets to King David, and we think, whew, all right, now we're talking. Now we got some royalty here. Now we're talking about some strong roots. Now we're talking about significant lineage until we remember 2 Samuel 11, right? Because what does he do? Matthew includes here in this, in this one of the most interesting lines, I think. Because then he says this, right? He says, David was the father of Solomon whose mother was Uriah. Why didn't Matthew just say her name was Bathsheba? Well, the reason is because he wants us to say, hey, why didn't he give her the name? Hey, what's the story? And he goes on to remind us if you were to think about the story. Because Uriah, so King David was anointed to be the next king after Saul. Saul found out that, king, that David had been anointed to, be his, to follow him. He didn't like that, and so he wanted to kill him. And so he was chasing him all around where there was a group of loyal men who are following after the next king, which would be King David. They, they were called David's mighty men. And these David's mighty men uh, would go and follow him and would help keep him safe and would follow him around. And Uriah was one of those mighty men. David becomes king. Uriah serves in David's army. He's out fighting. He's out on the front lines protecting the king. And while he's out there, King David is hanging back at the palace. He sees Uriah's wife. He thinks she looks good. He decides that he wants to sleep with her. He does sleep with her. They, she becomes pregnant. So then he says, uh-oh, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to try to bring Uzziah back. And Uzziah is actually going to sleep with his wife. It's going to be all good. It's going to be their kid. He won't do it because he's such an upstanding guy. So David moves him to the front line so that Uzziah is killed. And then he marries Bathsheba. And then they have Solomon. And the story goes on. And then the genealogy continues. Fascinating stories. Matthew leaves off Bathsheba's name, not as a slight to her, but because Matthew wants to ensure that the dysfunction of the family is revealed, that the Messiah's family history is not clean and pristine, but is sordid and dysfunctional. So for those of you who walked away from your Thanksgiving celebration, shaking your head, driving away, looking at your spouse going, I cannot believe I'm a part of these people, take heart. (laughs) Be encouraged this morning. The resume of Jesus was full of gender outsiders and racial outsiders and cultural outsiders 
And the law of Moses excluded many of these people from the very presence of God. But here they are in the ancestry and the genealogy of Jesus. And you say, well, that's kind of interesting. Thank you for going through that. Now, what does that have to do with me in 2016? Well, in the brief time that we have together, let me point out three things. First, that the story of Christmas is for all of us. That the story of Christmas is for everyone. The story of Christmas is for the least and the lonely and the lost and the left out. And the story of Christmas is equally for the rich and for the powerful and for the establishment. That the story of Christmas is for everyone. It's for the left out. Matthew is trying to let us know that there, that there are people who are excluded by culture. That people that are excluded by the respectable of folks in society. That they too can come and be a part of Jesus' family. That that's what the story of Christmas is about. That Jesus came. That it doesn't matter your pedigree. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter. If, if, even if you've killed someone like King David, it doesn't matter those things. That if you will come to Jesus, if you will humble yourself before him, then, you, then there is grace enough for you. There is grace enough for us all. If you repent and believe in Jesus, his grace will cover your sin and will draw you into his family. That's the story of Christmas. It's for all of us. That's why he came. In the Bible times, if you were not a Jew, if you were not in this, this certain pedigree, then you were outcast, then you were unclean, then you couldn't participate in the worship of God, but you were one of those people. Well, in Christmas, we have Jesus himself who came to those people, those who are outside, those who are unrespectable, those who are detestable, and those who are sinners, and that's every single one of us. And he came to those who are the least, to the lonely, to the lost, and the left out, that the story of Christmas is not for the well-healed, but it's for the broken and for the lost. It's the story of Christmas. That's why he came. If Jesus was coming for the well-healed, he could have saved himself a trip. But he wasn't coming for the well-heeled. He was coming for sinners. He was coming into a dysfunctional, broken world. And he came. That's the story of Christmas. It's for all of our brokenness. For all of the brokenness in our own families and our own hearts. And the story of Christmas is for the rich and for the powerful. David was a king. He was rich. He was powerful. From the outside onlooker, David had everything that one could want. He was a man. He was a Jew. He was rich. He had power. He had it all. But David can only belong to the family of Jesus the same way everyone else can belong to the family of Jesus. By humbling themselves and coming to the cross of Jesus. That Jesus came and the rich and the powerful and the mighty must bow down before him. And the least and the lonely and the left out may come before him. And only because of God's grace can all of us come. There is no one so good that he does not need the grace of Jesus. And there is no one so bad that he is beyond the reach of the grace of Jesus. Christmas, the story of Christmas is here. This genealogy is here to let us know that for all of the racial outsiders, for all of the gender outsiders, for all the cultural outsiders, the story of Christmas is for you. It's for you for us. Secondly, the story of Christmas is hope. Matthew begins his genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
This is the promise in Genesis. If you were to go back to Genesis, he goes, talks about Abraham, and he makes a promise to Abraham. Let me just read it for you off the screen. The Lord came to Abram, whose name would later change to Abraham. Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you... I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all the people on earth will be blessed through you. This is the, the, the promise that God made to Abraham that through his line, through his lineage, all of the world would be blessed. It was, it was centuries from when God made that promise to when there was this angel that came to visit this little girl named Mary and tell her that she was going to give birth to the Messiah. Centuries passed. It took a long time for the promise to be fulfilled. Actually, there was a 400-year period right before, right after the last prophet and before the angel came to Mary where God said absolutely nothing. Zero. 400 years of nothingness. And then he didn't talk, he didn't send one messenger until he sent the angel that went and let people know that John the Baptist was going to come and be the forerunner to the Messiah. And the, the angel came and let Mary know that she was going to give birth to the one who would be the son, be the Messiah. You see, it's easy for us to think that God should work on our timeline and on our, our calendar. And when God doesn't work on our timeline or on our calendar or when the notification pops up on our cell phone, right, telling us that this is when things are supposed to happen, that somehow God has forgotten about us, that God is not going to be faithful to his promises. But God doesn't work that way. God says, I am sovereign over all things. Your timeline and my timeline are different. Almost never is God's timeline our timeline. And he says, yet, I am still faithful to my promise. It took, it took centuries from when, from when God made the promise that he was going to bless Abraham until the one who was actually the Messiah came into being in order that the Messiah may come and bless the whole world, that you and I, as a part of his church, may be able to go to the gender outsiders and go to the racial outsiders and go to the cultural outsiders with the great hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, our timing isn't God's timing, but God's timing is perfect timing. And the story of Christmas reminds us when we look at this that God is faithful to his promises and therefore we have hope. That we go with a message of hope out into a dysfunctional world. We know it's dysfunctional because so are we, but you are the ones who understand the story of Jesus and so therefore we are the ones who take the hope of Christmas out into the dys dysfunction in all of its glory. See, my hope, my confidence in Jim and Tammy's leaving is not because of all of the wise decisions, not because of all of, it's because God is sovereignly overseeing the big, great meta-narrative of our lives, and God is intimately involved in the small meta-narrative of their lives. 
God is faithful to the great grand promises of all the things that he's doing in our world, and he's faithful to the very promises that he's doing in the intimacy of your life. The strength, the confidence that I have in our church, that our church will continue to go forward with a message of hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ is not in the wisdom of the elders. It's not in the strength of my leadership. It's in the faithful promises of God. He's faithful in the grand meta-narrative of all things because he is sovereign, and he is also faithful in the small things of my life, and he's faithful in the things of our church. And so therefore, we have hope because we are people of hope because Christmas is a story of hope. And we get to be the privilege to take it to the least and the lonely and the lost and the left out. We're the ones that get to go to the powerful and the strong and say to everyone, bow before the manger. Bow before this Christ. And finally, thirdly, because my time is going away, the Christmas story is a story of rest. For those of you who enjoy math, this may be fun for you. Verse 17, another one of those verses, just you completely skim over and keep moving, right? He says this, there were 14 generations and all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to, to the Messiah, right? <clears throat> he said, fantastic. I'm glad we're going to finish here. <laughs> Look, he, here's the point. There's a 14 generations, right? So there's a group of se a gener seven generations and seven generations, and that equals 14. All right? That was from David. Uh, that was from Abraham to David. Then he goes to the next group of 14 and says there were seven generations and another seven generations. That equals 14. That was that was that group was from David to the, to Babylon. And then he says now from Babylon to the Messiah there was another seven generations, another seven generations. That equals 14. You tracking with me so far? Okay. That's what he's that's what he's saying there. And then he goes on to say that Jesus, the Messiah, is the beginning of the seventh seven, right? He's the next one. There have, been, there have been six sevens of generations, and Jesus is the beginning of the seventh seven. You say, so, I get it. Why are you telling me this? Because seven is a significant number in the Bible. The reason is because on the seventh day of creation, God rested. He stopped. Not because he was tired, but because he's setting a pattern in place of rest. And so for his people on the seventh day, on the Sabbath, they were to rest. They were to stop. They were to cease from their work. Every seventh year, every seventh year, then the farmer was to not plow his land, but was to be able to give his land a rest in order that that land may be able to replenish the nutrients that were actually in the land. Every 49th year, which was the last year of a set of sevens. Every 49th year was the year of Jubilee. And that meant all the slaves were released, all the debts were forgiven, all the land was to rest, all the people were to rest from their land. Jesus is the seventh seven. This coming of the Messiah, this one who is to come, is to usher in Jubilee where the slaves are freed, where, where, where debts are restored, where people are healed, where nur the nur nourishment of the people are able to become whole again, where healing happens. Why? Because we can rest. Because we rest in who he is. Because we are able to rest in what Jesus has done on our behalf. G Matthew is telling us that the Jubilee has come through this Messiah. Let me tell you of the lineage to the one where freedom comes. Where hope comes. Let me tell you, it, this is the story of, the, of Christmas, he says. The story of Christmas is simple. Christmas is about people coming together. Doesn't matter who you are. 
doesn't matter where you come from. doesn't matter if you're a gender outsider or a racial outsider or a cultural outsider. That People come together around Christmas. The story of Christmas is people coming together and bowing before the manger and being around the family of Jesus, being a part. The story of Christmas is about hope. Hope because through Though God does not work on our calendar or our timeline, he is faithful to his promises and therefore his people have hope. And Christmas is a story about rest. Yeah, because Jesus has come. The jubilee, the freedom, the restoration, the forgiveness has come to you and to us. And so therefore you don't have to prove yourself. Therefore you can let go of the grind in your individual life and because you know ultimately that you can rest in Christ and what he has done for you. The story is simple. It's about Jesus, that Jesus has come. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this grand story and that this is a story that, is a, that our story fits into this story and that because you have been faithful to all of the things that you were doing in all of the world, then we can know this morning that you will be faithful to all of the promises that you will be working out in our lives and in our church. And so we come to you with thanksgiving, and we come to you in hope, and we come to you gladly, bowing before the Messiah who came in a manger. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.